Are you ready to have a raven deliver Westeros right to your door? Announcing the official Game of Thrones box, a premium subscription box for the ultimate Game of Thrones fan. Each box will come packed with 100% exclusive, fun, and functional items that will never be available anywhere else, all worth over $120. Items range from apparel and vinyl figurines to homewares and accessories. Game of Owns listeners can save 10% off their first box with promo code OWNS. Visit www.culturefly.com and pre-order the first box today. We find ourselves here again. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. <laughs> Middle of the night, talking about a song of ice and fire. It's almost like the season's exactly. back on. That's kind of what it felt like to me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Emmett for joining us tonight and filling in for our friend Jeff. You get to tackle Tyrion 7 and the Wayward Bride with us. My absolute pleasure. I love you guys. I love the show. And yeah, I hear Jeff recommended me on the basis of uh, Tyrion 7 in particular because we're both huge fans of that chapter. So I'm happy to be here. Jeff has been talking about doing that chapter with us since we started the reread. And the one that we couldn't do it. (laughs) That's a damn shame. The one week that we're finally... I know it's too bad, but we're so excited to to have you with us instead i am as well so how's everything going in your life we were just catching up before my microphone wasn't working at first so i didn't get to catch up with you for a little bit Yeah, i was just telling hannah things are going very well i'm moving to a place closer to my job my job is going well i'm in good health family is going great i got dear lady chloe coming to visit in like a week and a half she sends her love by the way well we send our we've returned the love excellent i thought so (laughs) <laughs> would be so, awkward if we didn't exactly so like she sends her love really does she well okay then moving on but yeah everything's everything's coming up millhouse if i may quote the simpsons how many i have sauron shirts do you own <laughs> just, just the just the one but i always bring it out when i know i i have to be seen She's got all those pictures of me wearing it. It's true. There's a T-shirt that Hannah and I both know about that has the face of a lion on the front of it. Mm. It's not just the face of a lion, though, is the thing. Like, this T-shirt you know is like I'm the entire about. shirt is the lion's face, and it looks like it's about to eat you. Cool. I like that. It's one of the most aggressive articles of clothing I've ever seen, but I think that I think that your Eye of Sauron shirt might actually win. That's what I was saying. I was like, can I imagine the two of you standing side by side? The amount of times people have earnestly slash aggressively asked me if it's a vagina, I can't even tell you. Oh my gosh. Because the slit and it's like, no, idiots, it's a giant fiery eye. What's wrong with you people? Get your head in the game. I was going to say, next convention that we're all at, uh, can we promise some sort of like coordinated group outfit between the two of you? That's what about delightful. you? You need to wear something. I don't really have clothes like that. <laughs> eh. Well, you've got the three wolf shirt, so I feel like we're on the way. I do have the wolf shirt. It's just not as like intimidating. We'll be sufficiently metal. Yeah, I'll just be your hype person. There we go. I know that you've had short notice to prepare for our talk tonight. Where do you stand with your reread? contemplation slash how much love do you have for both of these chapters specifically i've heard oh, a rumor man. that you love Tyrion seven with all of your heart i love both these chapters really dearly i mean dance is my favorite and i'm always very open about that uh, i did uh, go back through these chapters a little bit before we uh, got together tonight but i know them both really well so i'm definitely pumped to discuss them um they're both definitely huge favorites of mine i think they both do a lot of different things really well and the prose is really strong uh so 
I'm, I'm definitely thrilled to discuss them. That's good to hear because I have a lot of questions. Sweet. How did you feel about it? How did I feel about it? I thought these were two really great chapters. I mean, Emmett men- mentions like the pros of, of both of them. I thought it was really, I felt like half of my notes this time around. Typically, when I take notes, I try to mostly just write down my thoughts and some questions mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit of theories. But this time around, most of my notes are just blocks of quotes from both of these chapters because I think that they're really well written i love this battle scene that we get at the end of the wayward bride and i love how jorah kind of gets revealed a little bit in this chapter with Tyrion. it's just both of them are really well written and so i'm excited to to dive into both of them absolutely and it's fitting that we have you on the show for this Greyjoy chapter following up the reaver which i know we were so excited to talk about it i feel like we have not given the wayward bride enough pre-hype if that makes any sense, because we, we <laughs> sure. talked about Tyrion 7 last week at, at the end of uh, the tidings of the Reaver, and we were excited because Jeff wanted to come hang out, and, and it was the reason why you came on as well. But I feel like we're not talking about the Wayward Bride enough. This chapter was amazing. At, at the end of it, I was like, do we just make the episode about this chapter? It's true. It's one of those chapters that feels like a book unto itself. Like there's such mm-hmm. a range of moods and things happening. It just, it feels like an isolated short story almost. I mean, it connects to the rest of the book, but it, it's so complete on its own merits. And there's, yeah, it, it like, it, there's like, there's sweary sweet stuff, like the sex scene with Asha and Carl. There's very sad stuff. Like she's very depressed and thinking about Theon and her family. And then there, like you said, Anna, there's a, a really great battle scene at the end. So it's just, the, the range is, is excellent. It's also really cool to spend some time with Asha after spending so much time with Euron and Victarion because yes. the three of them could not be, in my opinion, more different. And to have just spent so much time with Victarion hating his brother and <laughs> the kind of man that he is to Asha and the way that she leads her men and the way that she thinks about her family and, and the way that she kind of just strategizes her her moves and all this kind of stuff. It's very interesting to see those different contrasting points of view because I just think that they're so incredibly different. Oh, I totally agree. Ash is the one Greyjoy I think we're supposed to unreservedly like. identify with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> totally. I mean, with Victorian, you, you read a Victorian chapter to laugh at him and to make fun of him and to realize that he's just this ridiculous man. But Asha, you know, I, I, love, I love about... Asha's POV chapters is when you meet her in class, she, she's so like, she's very, you know, brazen and charismatic and, you know, very just exterior, you know, very extroverted. And she, you know, gets around and she's still that in her POV chapters, but you get inside her head and she's actually really sad and kind of like her thoughts are kind of quiet and depressed and very inward. And it makes, I think, a nice contrast with how she appears in Theon's POV in which she's just dominating. But she's, you know, she's got some real real hardships to work through. And I think that makes her much more compelling as a character. When we compare how she treats the Glovers, mm. they're holding Deepwood Mott and rather than parading the noble family around as servants, they're just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just like, it starts, the chapter starts, if I recall correctly, with just a very matter of fact, like she was sitting in Galbrook Lever's long haul, drinking Galbrook Lever's wine when Galbrook Lever's maester brought her the letter about Theon and like about the Ramsey's letter. We may be ironborn, but we've fully integrated ourselves into this process. Oh, totally. Like you compare it to Theon at Winterfell and like Theon at Winterfell, he knows those people. He was raised there and yet he still feels completely alienated from them and is just like doing, you know, is like committing horrible violence and then asking for their loyalty. And he just has no idea functionally how to be a leader. 
And while Asha, her plan, I think, has its problems and I think, you know, ultimately fails by the end of this chapter, she's she's a much more kind of nuanced and self-aware person than Theon is. Mm-hmm. What do you think the point in all of this is as far as the way she's treated the people that she's nearby, the way that she's treating her men, the way that she thinks out each step of their plan and it seems like it's working but in the end they're met with the kind of fury that might not have song sung about it because they decided to do it in that way instead of with the standoff yeah in the actual it's, castle it's tough like i can look at asha's plan and like see okay it's clearly much better than theon's clearly much better than victorian's clearly much better than euron's but like she still I, she still has i think a problem getting around her dad's war and what what she was there in the north to do like she talks about Balin's war being useless and like it was all for pine cones and rocks but it's like you fought that war you went along with it you were you seemed enthusiastic about it and now she can't like i think she's she's the best you can possibly be within the ironborn framework but that's there's still limits there like she still can't quite break through like there's the great line not in this chapter but in her next chapter the king's prize when she's trying to make friends with alisane mormont and she's like complimenting Allison, like you're such a badass. You work on your own. You moment winner, awesome. And Allison says, "Yeah, we're awesome and badass because we have to fight you. That's why we. Ra- that's why we're raised this way. That's why we're so hardcore because the Ironborn keep attacking us." And Asha starts to realize, "Oh, this is this is like my peace I wanted with the North isn't quite realistic because there's all this history there that I wasn't dealing with." Like when she says at the Kingsman, "Like we're gonna make friends with the North," like who are you talking about negotiating with? Like, the Starks are gone. You think you're going to make friends with the Boltons? That's never going to happen. So, like, I, I I love her. I think she's a she's a strong, interesting, wonderful person. I think she's morally well ahead of the rest of her family. But she's still got, like, a contradiction to resolve. I think she's got the will to resolve it and the self-awareness to resolve it. But she does have to do it at some point. Well, I think she's much more self-aware. Exactly. Of her actions and, and of who she is. And as you're saying, kind of like the frame in which she operates in, she she makes a comment um, as she decides to take her men and run, basically, where she says, will they sing of your courage or of my folly? And, you know, she she just seems very much in this chapter self-aware of the decisions she's making them and why she's making them and whether or not they're quote unquote correct. And as we see the end that they lead to, at least she's kind of trying to do what's best for her men and do what's best for her and you know she says better for them to die with their feet wet near the sea i completely agree she's a much better leader like you compare that to theon and winterfell like telling his men let's all die here and be badasses for no reason whatsoever compare that to asha who realizes you know what there's no point in dying right here at this castle right now i'm not going to waste my men's lives if we're going to die let us you know let us do it trying to get home And I think that's, you know, it might end up in roughly the same place, but I think you're right. I think in terms of her POV, in terms of how she thinks about it and what she's doing, and just as a leader, I mean, Asha's just a fascinating leader character, I think, in a way that we're like Theon, whenever he attempted to be a leader, was just to show how bad he was at it. And same with Victarion. They just can't, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just the surface. Asha's got some actual real, some true steel to her. I think that, yeah, that separates her from the rest of her family. I kind of get the idea that a lot of her men and the people serving her kind of idealize her a little bit um, and then maybe look at her a little bit differently than maybe she actually is. And I don't know if that's something that kind of rubs off on, on us as the leader or if she really would or does make that great of a leader or is really, as like I was saying, self-aware and like, quote unquote, good at her job as she is, you know, I don't know if 
her idealization plays into that at all, or if maybe I'm just kind of reading into that. Does she ha- she has the line right about like half her men wanted to sleep with her and half of them think of her as a daughter. It's something like that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which, you know, I mean, I think she's managed to like turn both of those into I think, yeah, but she says is half them want to sleep with her, half them think of her as a daughter, but either kind would die for her. So she's managed to like wrap all these different kind of sometimes creepy or condescending attitudes into like an actual leadership hole i think she's man and like you see that balance she's drawing like even in clash when she's like saying you know here's my husband and here's my suckling babe with the axe and the dagger like she's taking the she's she's tackling her femininity head on in in a way that she knows it could hold her back as a leader within this within the ironborn society and she's trying to like kind of lean into it in a way which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm curious where she kind of learned that speech from. If, she, if it's something she talked about with Balin, if it's something she talked about with Roderick the Reader or her mom, or she came up with it on her own. But we never really get a sense. I wish we'd gotten more of a sense of like Balin training her as his heir and how he thought that was going to go. Because we don't really get much of a sense of that. And I'm curious how he thought that was going to work within Ironborn society. But you know, I guess we'll never mm-hmm. know. To hear you guys say it out loud, I am just kind of scratching my head and wondering how this was all meant to work out because at the end of the day that they do end up in the same place yeah i mean that's the ironborn for you even they they may try different plans but if if ultimately your plan comes time to like steal land and hope you get away with it like it's not gonna it's 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 not gonna end that well and the ironborn just don't have the strength to back up the kind of conquest they're talking about what's the story with the Greyjoys, with her specifically knowing where she heads forward in the books that we've read so far she didn't suffer from the same problems in leadership like her brother did, but true. in this case, the wolves still circled. They still broke through. They were still howling, and at the end of the day, she still captured. People still died on both sides. She's still getting a raven, dark wings, dark words. It still has flesh of her brother inside of it. So what good has all the good in her time with the men that love her and adore her? Like, What good does it give her, and, and what she's still needing that she's not receiving from that well i think that this kind of plays into a little bit of what was discussed in this chapter very briefly with torgon the latecomer and a little bit of what i think is or could be we could talk about foreshadowing into somebody overthrowing the king's moot for real and her role with theon and just like in this bigger picture of what's happening with yaron and her brothers i think that from my perspective so far, a lot of what she's doing is going to play into that bigger idea and maybe not so much of like a personal victory or like a personal journey, but like this whole conflict that's happening with inside of her family and, and playing roles within that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's 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 key that she's running to Theon again. And it's key that she's running to Theon when he's, I think, you know, vulnerable. And like mm-hmm. desperate and like in a way where he was when they reunited in class, he was so bold and brazen and trying to be better than her and trying to prove to daddy that I'm the best, you know, child you've gotten. That's all gone now. And like so they're both they both kind of the scales have kind of fallen from both of their eyes, although obviously much more traumatically in Theon's case. Literally. Uh, so I think they're. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now they're in a much better position, I think, to cooperate. And and mm-hmm. I, I completely agree, Hannah, on the Torgon Latecomer discussion. I think that's probably where that's going. But it can, you know, they can they can bring out the best in each other now. Whereas like in Clouds, they were clearly bringing out the worst in each other. And I think they can, you know, and, and that for me resonates with the Greyjoys as a whole. Because like, look at the previous generation. 
and just like the horrible sibling relationships, like, you know, Euron just murdering and raping his brothers and just manipulating them and doing these horrible things to them. So if the next generation can work together, you know, maybe that's there's some hope for the Greyjoys there. I'm going to read the snippet from the book about Torgon the Latecomer. Here it is. Go for it. It's got a pretty awesome name. Torgon Greyiron was the king's eldest son, but the king was old and Torgon was restless. So it happened that when his father died, he was raiding along Demander from his stronghold on Greyshield. His brother said no word to him, but instead quickly called a king's moot. What an idea. I mean, we're supposed to see that. Yeah, exactly. In the sense of setting up exactly what's happening with Euron and what could happen with Theon, if it's Theon, or I don't really know what other options there may necessarily be. But I know that there may be some speculation that Theon wouldn't be a likely candidate. I don't know. But I just feel like it's almost too perfect of, of a framework of, of kind of what could happen in the future. And I think that Asha sees that. But do you think it matters that she's having this conversation with Christopher Botley? Oh, Tris. What a mean, <laughs> I mean loser he is. <laughs> she immediately sighs as he walks in. She's just like, oh. She's God. just trying to get some snacks and he just like pops in. He's just like, Asha, I love you so much. And it's just, God, dude. And just <laughs> the contrast with her just lovely, sweet relationship with Carl. That, yeah. Uh, I was a bit thrown off at first. Not going to lie. Lovely and sweet. I was like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. I think absolutely thrown off in the beginning of that relationship i was like is he is that oh, is that what's happening yeah here? is this right. like consent that's true that's definitely <laughs> an interesting thing the first time through that passage when he like grabs her by the wrist and such you're like what 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 is happening and then you realize it's role play that's just which is definitely thing. an interesting uh choice on martin's part to write it that way i think it ends up fitting her character really well that she would like that that would be kind of her thing that paragraph was just kind of a roller coaster ride Oh, totally, because you don't know what's happening at first. I was like, I see where you're, where you're putting our minds at first, and I don't know, man. I don't, oh, uh, well, especially <laughs> in a series read. where that happens right. exactly. more where often than it should. Where we've seen graphic sexual assault occur, or, or, and I think that's probably intentional on Martin's part. He wants our hackles to be up before he uh, lets us know what's actually happening. Um, but yeah, I say, I say lovely and sweet about that simply because, thinking less of that moment, but more like the stuff when she's like, Thinking of like how they got together and how they like devoured peaches and each other, and like yeah. she would marry him if she wasn't a Greyjoy and could. And there's like there's a connection with peaches again, like we saw with uh, Renly and Stannis. So like peaches are symbolic of the good times and the spring that mm-hmm. you once had, and the kind of the, the 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 paradise lost, the things that have faded away from your life, and uh, that comes up again with Asha. I like how she's thinking it. It's still been summer then. Robert sat the Iron Throne. Balon brooded in the Sea Stone Chair. The Seven Kingdoms were at peace, and yeah, that peach imagery. That's I didn't wasn't even thinking about the fact that that also came into play with Renly. So yeah, yeah that's it's so a very cool. Thing it's like this is what peace looks like. This is what peace lets you do. It lets you have this 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 sweet relationship with this dude. This dude who Asha knows she can't marry, but she just wants, you know, wants this, this little bubble with him. And that's a, yeah, that's, that's a lovely thing. But yeah, so right, we're talking about Torgan, Torgan Lightcomer. I totally agree with you, Hannah. The parallels are really strong. You got, uh, just, just the phrase bad brother again fits Euron so perfectly because he is literally a bad brother, like the worst brother imaginable. Um, there's the right there, Urgon or Urathon or whatever the name of the bad brother was. Like that's there's the character Urathon Nightwalker who comes up in Karth that many people have theorized is Euron. So he might there's that name connection there, and yeah, and there's the Theon wasn't at the king's move, so he can he can pull that same trick. 
if he, you know, if that's where they're going. So there we go. We solved a song of ice and fire. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Everything is okay. I thought that scene between them was so sweet, though. How she eventually kisses him on the head and goes to the window and stares off into the the sea. But instead of it being the ocean, it's a sea of trees, and she broods over, like you were saying earlier, Emma, the things that she's sad about and the things that she'd like to see fixed in the world. And eventually it leads to, yeah, I got to go get that midnight snack. And it just felt so real how she was barefoot leaving the bedchamber and the guards were like, hey. And she pads across the yard and is grinning about the the waking the dogs. The Glover's hounds are barking. She's like, good. Why not? Yeah. And goes into the kitchen and starts. It just felt, I don't know, it just felt in a chapter where there's vicious battling at the end and in a chapter where she's the decisive leader of the situation. We're getting so many different emotions, I feel, and different descriptions of stories like the peach. There's just so much range in this chapter. I had a lot mm-hmm. of fun reading it. And this was a really sweet, sort of warm part of it. Yeah, like I said earlier, it's almost like a self-contained novel in that way. Just the sheer range of emotions you bring up. Like you say, there's the there's the, the like the political stuff about her dealing with the North, and there's her personal depression stuff about losing the Kingsmoot, losing Theon. Then there's the, the sex stuff with Carl. But then, yeah, like there's these little moments of just her padding down to grab a snack from the kitchens. And it's like this little in-between moment. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's very focused and very well written. And then, like you say, the, the nature imagery, too, surrounded by the sea of trees. We get the sense of the wolf's wood. I mean, so much of, like, yeah, the northern part of dance is about, like, you know, getting you invested in these different areas of the north. Parts we haven't, because we haven't seen that much of the north before dance. It's mostly been Winterfell. And then in dance, mm-hmm. you get like you get White Harbor and you get the Dread Ford and you get Barrowton and you get the, the Wolfswood and you get all these little different parts of it. And, uh, you know, it's you're invested more in the culture of it. And it's you know, you're seeing it from an outsider's eyes and Asher, you know, an outsider who is trying to be more insider, uh, but ultimately coming up short. What did you guys think about her constant mentions of her relationship back home? Well, I think that part of it why it's always in her mind is because she's also thinking about what she can do next and where she can go next and what she's supposed to do, especially near the end of the chapter as they're trying to escape, essentially. I think that having him there and as a figure and as her husband really limits her options. I feel like she cannot go home if for no other reason than the fact that she'd have to be this guy's wife. And she very obviously is not thrilled about that. So I feel like he just kind of represents this idea that she that option is closed off to her. Like she can't go home unless she wants to be someone's wife. The old way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys <laughs> I need to find the passage. But when they talk about the the wedding that happened while Asha obviously <laughs> wasn't there and how a seal, a literal seal yes. <laughs> stands in for her. Is yeah, that's such great. a hilarious image. And yeah, I totally I love it. I totally agree with what you're saying, Hannah. I think it's like this kind of like if she goes back, she has to she's she's not Balin's heir anymore and she just has to play the role of a woman in Ironborn society, which just isn't great. And like Eric especially, like she's the one who mocked him at the Kingsman when he was putting forth his uh his campaign. She said, you know, stand up. If you can get out of your chair, I'll support you. And he couldn't do it. Um, and part of me thinks like, that's why Euron married her to him specifically. Like just as a, mm-hmm. as a, like a dagger between the ribs, like this man you mocked and like demonstrated was kind of impotent and past his age. I'm going to make you his wife. That'll, that'll, that'll teach you Asha. And same with the seal. That's just, that's just mockery. You know, Euron trying to tear her down 
any way he can. And I think she's kind of reeling from that. Like, like, like I was thinking about her chapter titles, like the Kraken's daughter, the wayward bride, the King's pride. It's always framing her in terms of men and her trying to deal with her context in a world that's run by men. And she's trying to find her own place within that. But she keeps being kind of hemmed in by all, from all sides by like by dudes like Triss, who are, you know, just can only think of her as a woman within Ironborn society or as a prize to be won. And she's having difficulty trying to come up with an identity beyond that because she's not Balin's heir anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. She's she's cut off from the Ironborn. She's cut off from Theon. So she doesn't really know who she is. Like, uh, Carl at one point in this chapter calls her my sweet queen and she thinks to herself, I'm, I'm never going to be queen of anything. And she just, she just, you know, I think a lot, a lot of this chapter, she just doesn't know what to do or where to go. She's depressed functionally. And it doesn't help that he's the hilarious manifestation of all of her men's love for her in this package <laughs> that's more acceptable than the one she actually has feelings for. Yeah, this is true. Triss is a more marriageable prospect given his house and the history there, but he's just so, I mean, just pathetic. I mean, there's worse, there's worse people than <laughs> Triss, obviously. He's not a bad there person. Are. But he's well, just kind of live. funny. I love No, I you. was literally about to say, <laughs> I was like, I need to read that quote. He's the Quentin style of romance for her. Exactly. Like, yeah, uh-huh. she's the Triss as Danny is to Quentin. I think that's a solid comparison. <laughs> well, we all, hey, Quentin got a shout out in this chapter. Cousin Quentin, no big deal. This is true. This is true. Quentin, uh, Quentin Greyjoy, one of the, the lesser Greyjoys hanging out around him. But yeah, Triss is like, yeah, he's not a bad person. He's not a violent person. He's not a mean. He's not a dumb person either. Uh, one thing going back to this chapter I love after the Forsaken is that he's the only one who got right what happened to Damper. Like he says, you know, Damper. People think Damper is out starting a rebellion. I guarantee Euron took care of him right after the King's Moot, and he's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And he's like right. the only one who predicted that correctly. So he's not dumb, but he's ju- he's got this. It's his perspective on her that doesn't make any sense and is unconnected to her and is rooted in like their time as kids when they were making out or whatever it was. And then like she tells him, like Tris says, I just, I've waited for you the whole time. And Asha says, well, I didn't. <laughs> I've been <laughs> sleeping with people. And he's like, he doesn't, I thought you would wait. Were you forced? And he's just like, he doesn't, he's incapable of understanding her or where she's coming from or where, how she wants to live. So he's, you know, he's, yeah, he's not, I, I, I don't hate Tris. I just feel kind of, I just kind of roll my eyes at him really. Yeah. Like I was saying, he's definitely one of those people who idealizes her. He did get a swaggy moment at in the battle, though. He did hold his own a little bit there. Oh yeah, he's yeah, he's one. No, he's one of those. There's so many characters. He's he's a knight of summer. You know, he's one of those characters in the story. Yeah, the, the, the that's a good way to describe him. Blinded by their ideals and their vision of what they thought was going to happen, and can't really deal with it not matching up with reality. Well, if only she would trust his advice a little bit more. This was a plan, one of those plans where as readers we see and we're like, just do it. Just do it. This was his, totally. idea, his idea. He's like, let's, let's quit everything and let's become. And she's like, pirates. And then he's like, well, not exactly. And she's like, oh, oh, go on. <laughs> and and he's like, pirates. here's what we'll do. <laughs> we'll voyage east as the crow's eye did, but we'll come back with silks and spices instead of a dragon's horn. One voyage to the Jade Sea and we'll be as rich as gods. We can have a Manson Old Town or one of the free cities. I mean, there's a spinoff Tempting. right there. Trish, yeah, I mean, was much worse things Asha. to happen. And Carl. Yeah, she's not wrong. Exactly. Exactly. Right. She brings that up and he flinches immediately. God, that was rough. But no, that's a great point. Like that's, and for me, like that's what the Ironborn should be doing. They should like give up conquest entirely Especially and focus purely, right now. focus purely on trade. Like you have ships, you have lots of ships. 
go out around the world and and be merchants, be a or like uh, uh, Stephen Atwell, a race for the Iron Throne, had this great concept where the Ironborn should basically be organized crime, like they should be like the mafia of harbors, like they should be smugglers and moving like goods around and like they should be like Davos, but on the national level, like that's what they should be doing. How do you think that they would hold up in Bravos? Bra- I mean, if they could, if they could give up the whole thraldom thing, I think they would do very well in Bravos. You got a bunch of different people all from all over the world, lots of ships, lots of trading going on. Bra- I mean, Bravos is, is my favorite. I think that's where every- everyone should live in Bravos. But yeah, if they could just, if they could just give up, their ridiculous supremacy nonsense that they cling to, they could do very well. But no, they have to be the conquering best, awesome, you know, it's it's the South shall rise again thing with them. They just can't give it up. I feel like you're giving us li- life lessons and not just lessons about the Greyjoys. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, again, Osh is the closest one to getting it, which is, is makes, makes her lovable. Well, it's so true, though. And I mean, you think about even just on a more practical level as, as she's overlooking the trees and hearing them rustle and thinking about how it doesn't look like the ocean and just wanting to get back to her ships. Like, from a practical standpoint, it's what they would want to be doing anyway. It's what they're good at. And might as well be playing to your strengths here than fighting people on land in a way that you're not typically used to dealing with people. They don't have the numbers out of the or bushes. the skill to conquer the North. I mean, she pointed out to Theon when he took Winterfell, like, look, you can't hold Winterfell. Like, the supply lines are too long to the sea. We don't hold the land around this castle. You can't hold it, which is true. But then, like, the response to that is, well, then how did you think this was ever going to work? How did you think you were going to conquer the North in that case? You don't have the men. You don't have the siege craft. You don't have the discipline. Like, it's... You know, if it wasn't for Ramsey, like, coming out of nowhere in Clash of Kings, like, they would have lost the war right there. And, the, you know, and again, Asha's the closest one to getting that, but she's still clinging to this thing. Or, like, we can hold on to the land and we can hold on to this castle. And, yeah, as we see by the end of this chapter, that's, it's just not going to happen. The North is, like, you have, like, you know, the, the North right now in dance is, like, divided between Stannis and the Boltons. Like, those are the two main factions. And, like, the way both of those factions are trying to gain support from the North is by fighting the Ironborn. Like, that's how you appeal to the people of the North, is by kicking the Greyjoys out. And she realizes that this chapter. Yeah, exactly. She she gradually catches on that she's just not welcome, especially after what her brother did at Winterfell, you know, ostensibly killing the Starks. That's just, there's there's no coming back from that. So we're stranded without a paddle smack in the middle of the north well not quite in the middle but close enough further away from the sea that we're comfortable with Dampere might be dead all of Triss's advice so far seems to be working i thought his thoughts on sea dragon point i don't know if it was indicative to where she should go but maybe it's indicative to what she would be going back to if she did it says Hmm. you were clinging to sea dragon point the way a drowning man clings to a bit of wreckage what does sea dragon point have that anyone could ever want there are no mines no gold no silver not even tin or iron and i think the key part of it is the land is too wet for wheat yeah corn it's, it's like it's conquest like that's the that's the thrill of it like it's just symbolic like we can take it because we can again it's that that supremacist thing where like they want to be they want to be in charge and they're convinced that it's their manifest destiny to be in charge and asha's asha can almost understand that that's bs but she's still kind of mired in it she still has it in her blood exactly asha's asha for me is like a character 
like waking up from a nightmare. Like she's trying to get out of this terrible ideology. And like you look at someone like a Victorian who is just like lost. Like he's so mired in this worldview that he's just never getting out. And like with Asha, you can see that she's trying and she want, but like she can't because like like you know I think for Asha like if she if she goes with Triss's plan, what she has to admit is that her dad was an idiot. Like she has to admit that Balin's war was always a terrible idea. And I don't think she. I don't think she can quite bring herself to go that far to to completely reject her her family and her her culture and her people. I think she's getting there gradually, but I, I think at this point in her story, she can't. I think the reason she's so kind of suffused with ennui is because she can't really admit that to herself, even though deep down she knows it's true. I think it would be helpful if she had an idea of where to go, though. Oh yeah, if she's, if she's framing so much of her experience around the interactions with her men. If, if this writing on what she would have to meet at Sea Dragon Point is indicative to what could be just symbolically the rest of the Iron Islands for her, hmm. now that the original plan, like now that what she originally thought was true at home isn't true anymore because of what her brother did, what is there to go back to? Yeah, it's true. She's in exile in a hostile country and home is a hostile country and her husband is, you know, not someone she cares about or wants to be with. She's very kind of lost and unmoored at this point mm-hmm. and that you know she needs to find a new organizing principle of some kind some kind of new pedestal that she can work with and uh you know she's still got like you know as, as we said the the personal moments between her and her men or her and carl or or i love like my favorite uh, secondary character in this chapter hagen's red-haired daughter who's just awesome. Ah, yes. This woman who does not get a name, but is nonetheless a badass. That paragraph, though. Oh, yeah. Like, she... I love it. Like, she's kind of... Again, she, she's she got all of life within her. Like, even, like during the battle, she's coming out and fighting naked. And, like, in a pause during the battle, she grabs someone to go off in the bushes to sleep with them. Because, like, you know, let's get one last good time in before it all goes down. You know, that's... Again, there's that, 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 that great sweep of life in this chapter that, that she kind of represents. And there's that... There's a, there's a real hope to that, but also it's like, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of, it's, it's the last hurrah kind of thing. Like she's got a sweet thing with Carl, but like they always know it's coming to the end. Mm-hmm. Hagen's daughter bursts naked from beneath the trees with two wolves at her heels. Asha yes. wrenched loose a throwing axe and sent it flying end over end to take one of them in the back. When he fell, Hagen's daughter stumbled to her knees, snatched up his sword, stabbed the second man, then rose again, smeared with blood and mud, her long red <laughs> hair unbound and plunged into the fight. Man. That is... That's awesome. so good. I hope somebody out there has made some really cool drawings of that because that would be so cool. It's great. Like you can see like okay, so like that's what's worth preserving, right? Like that's that's the little fire at the core of the ironborn that shows it's not for nothing. Like there's some real awesome humanity there that's worth keeping alive and that's worth Asha's fighting for, but it's it's very fragile in this chapter and very kind of, you know, besieged quite literally. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say all this is great and all, but she does get sh- get captured. <laughs> so that's true. She does go down in that battle. <laughs> what a great battle scene that is! It's really, really good. I love the the men fighting, covered in leaves, and that small respite back to the children of the forest, and the way that they potentially turned the trees into soldiers. Oh, absolutely! It was really good. It's also a Macbeth reference. The uh, the Burnham Wood, the uh, people marching on Macbeth, like wearing the the trees and leaves as armor. So Martin does love his Shakespeare. That's good. I like that. I also really like Grimtongue, who in the midst of this battle that seems 
confusing and not great from the start. He is yelling out how many men he's killed. Yeah, it's like a four, very Legolas five, and Gimli six. kind of thing, Shout isn't out it? Gimli. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was a, a neat moment. Exactly. It's like the uh, it's it's yeah, that's that's the Ironborn in a nutshell. Like it's kind of dumb and ridiculous, but you can't you can't help but love it in a way. Uh that they're that they're going that they're willing to go down fighting in that way. And like yeah, even in that battle like Asha can't quite escape her gender. Like she's fighting uh what one of the littles who keeps calling her a cunt over and over again when he's fighting her. And then later on, he apologizes to her for that. But as she notes, he's not apologizing for trying to cut my head open with an axe. He's just <laughs> apologizing for calling me names while he does it. And like that's that's Asha's relationship she to gender. Is a lady, I feel like in a nutshell, all. exactly. She was coming at him with a sword, but oh, he can't can't be rude to the lady while I try to cut her to pieces. That just isn't done. So that yeah, for me, that kind of sums up her relationship to gender. Where like even in the midst of a battle where they're all fighting for each other's lives, even then she can't escape people making fun of her because she's a woman. How about her battle anxiety being so much less or more? It's hard to say, but now that we've seen a couple Greyjoys go blow to blow, almost back to back, or at least in back to back episodes of our podcast, I first had a note where I was like, "Oh, she doesn't think while she fights," and I was like, "Oh, never mind." She. There was there was something in there, but it was much less than Victorian. You know what I mean? She was more in the dance, and it was so much more. I don't know. It was it was way less chaotic. Oh, totally. It's interesting to compare this one to the Victorian battle, yeah, because yeah, she's much less into it than Victorian is, and she's like, you know, she's not just conquering all her enemies left and right. But Victorian, like, he's also wearing armor on a right. ship where no one else is wearing armor, so in the his sword element, is bouncing off him exactly. So he's not really. He's kind of a coward. Like, he's not really risking anything. And even though, like, his only wound is self-inflicted because he's such a moron that he just grabs his sword because <laughs> he thinks that's awesome. <laughs> like, you know, Asha would never do anything remote. Like, even Theon wouldn't do anything that stupid. So there's, yeah, there is definitely a contrast between the two of them and how they, yeah, how they think about war and how they think about their men. It's it, it's very different. Well, and she's very much fighting. It's dark and they're all kind of tripping over each other and they're surrounded and there's people who are covered in leaves and they can't see who anybody is and they're in this forest and unfamiliar territory. And so it's such a completely different situation for her to be fighting here than almost anywhere else, you know? Yeah. She's surrounded in their backyard and he had the iron fleet pulling up beside them. No, that's an excellent point. It's she's she's exactly she's out of her out of her element and that kind of undercuts like she says at one point, there wouldn't be no songs sung of the, of the battle they fought. Like it's not elegant, it's not beautiful, it's just very choppy and chaotic, and no one really knows what's happening. And it kind of, yeah, I think it kind of is deliberately trying to undercut the the glory of it by just, but at the same time, preserving some humanity. Because like you see, you know, no one will mm -hmm. ever sing about it, but we're, you know, we know, we know what we're fighting about, and we're we're here doing our job. So there is. Yeah, there is a melancholy to that. There's, you know, the whole chapter is very melancholy in a way that I like. Well, and it ends kind of in this melancholic confusion almost where she gets back back into a tree and she is in a lot of pain and she hears a trumpet and all this. She kind of wonders, she thinks she's dead and she wonders how she could hear something like that in the drowned god's watery halls. And then it ends with, it says she dreamt of red hearts burning and a black stag in a golden wood with flames streaming from his antlers, which is to signal how she's or who she's been captured by. But I just feel like the end also just like very much mirrors 
how this entire battle went, like in a little bit of confusion and uncertainty, and then it's just over. So I thought that 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 was a really nice like end scene to this chapter that, as we've been saying, has kind of been like a story in of its own, and that's a great way to end it. I I totally agree. I love that she doesn't know until the very end who she's even fighting, mm-hmm. who she's even up against, and she's like, and she can't even make sense of it. It's like it's very much like when Stannis showed up at the wall and John thought at first, wait, is it Robert or who, what's going on? Who, who, who just showed up here? And it's the same way. Like no one expected, she doesn't expect Stannis to show up. She probably doesn't even know Stannis is in the North at that point. Like she's just, you know, it's, it's a complete, it's something that's completely out of nowhere for her. And she's just trying to make sense of it, even as she kind of slips into unconsciousness. I don't know what everyone's looking for when reading these books, because this is about, I mean, this is, I know that this isn't happening specifically to Arya, but you can't ask for much more than this. The the battle in the forest, this is after they've escaped, which is something that you wouldn't expect a Greyjoy to do this far into the story. She makes that decision immediately turning what I thought was the consciousness of the chapter while I was reading it. I know that a lot of the first was interpersonal relationships and lots of talk of, of political movements. But after she made that decision, it was like, okay, the plan was to reach their ships in the morning, this fight starts in the middle of the night. They're trying to get some sleep, but they're not catching any sleep because they're scared of the people hunting them. And the fight begins with a severed head getting, it's just like, they're like, I think something's happening. And then uh, I forget how George describes it. Something like red hair sort of flying yeah, through the air. Someone says something sarcastic about it, I think, if I recall correctly. They're just like, oh, that's Rolf. He says, Rolf the Dorf's <laughs> not so tall as he once was. There it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's how we start out the fight. Then it it's just a conversion of howling wolves. And it's terrifying. And some people are dressed up like bushes. I, I know it's only happening to Asha Greyjoy, but I mean, I don't know what more we want out of these books. Oh, I agree. I think it's an incredible chapter. Yeah, it's a really well done battle scene. So cool. So cool. And I think this is one of the most famous Asha Greyjoy quotes. If I must die, I will die with an axe in my hand and a curse upon my lips. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the one. That's a great line. It's ironically very similar to the Northmen who capture her, who then later say, like, you know, let me die with let me bathe in Bolton blood before I die. Let me die with the taste of it on my lips. It's, uh, you know, as much as a lot of the, you know, stories, you know, very anti-war and showing the horrible sides of war and people who die in battle. It's also it's not immune to like the romance of deciding, you know what, I this is a I can die this way. This is a fine way to go. There's a there's a, you know, a power to that decision that you see kind of made a few times in the series. And I think that's definitely one of them. Meanwhile, she's so close to so much more out of life. And us as a reader, we're just like, come on. Oh, just yeah. We make see it the potential in her. We're rooting for her to get get better and do better. That's definitely there. Yeah, definitely more so than any of the other Greyjoys right now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They're all, yeah, either horribly traumatized or just hopeless or both. Or I guess we're rooting for Theon. At this point, we're rooting for Theon to like get better and like, you know, survive yeah. exactly <laughs> to, just to be alive, but like not to like even do anything necessarily, just like get out of Ramsey's orbit as best he can. Yeah. Speaking of chapters that seem to like have an entire novel within them, 
and turn to Tyrion 7, which is also a really, a really dense and uh, kind of multifaceted chapter. Lots of different kind of emotions and ideas going on. Tyrion 7, a favorite of mine for sure. I mean, I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm so glad to do this. <laughs> My delight. <laughs> okay, as we dive into this chapter, I'm very curious to hear Emmett, you're, and Zach, you can chime in too, obviously. But oh, sure. I think that I wouldn't say you've ever said this is your one of your fave chapters of all time. Emmett, I want to know kind of like overarching, high-level, one-minute overview of what makes this chapter, Tyrion 7, so great. I think this chapter is exemplifies how you do world-building well, because it gets us so deep into the city of Volantis and everything that's going on there and all the different kinds of factions and how they're fighting and what they want. And it's all from the perspective of a guy who's gotten really cynical about this sort of thing. Like, you know, Tyrion's been through the political ringer. He's been through leadership. He spent a lot of time in King's Landing. He, so he's just kind of like, you know, this is he's, he's got the line in this chapter. You know, Jorah says, do you think this is a jape? And he thinks he says, I think life is a jape. Yours, mine, everyone's. You know, he thinks this is just absurd and a waste of time. But through his eyes we get such a strong sense of this city. We get the sense of its its layout and its history, uh, the people who are in charge and like kind of how fragile their hold on power is, the kind of terror they're using to enforce it, the way that Dany's crusade has changed the politics of this city. And then as the chapter goes on, you get a sense of like the rebellions kind of bubbling up from below. You get all this time spent at the Red Temple and the kind of the, the R'hllor revolution going on. And then the chapter ends with the Widow of the Waterfront, who I absolutely adore. And her kind of like set up for for a revolution. So I think this is, you know, at the end of this chapter, I think you understand this city deeply and understand what's going on and why it's important, which is, you know, an amazing piece of work for what's what's a new a new location and one we don't know that much about. But I think there's this amazing paragraph in the middle of this chapter where Tyrion is thinking to himself, you know, beautiful Volantis, city of flowers and pools, but the pools were all empty and stagnant and cracked and the flowers were dying. Like he lists Volantis's reputation. And then he says, okay, but here's what's actually going on in the city. If you look around, you can smell the flop sweat. You can like see the cracks forming underneath the facade. And like it's, there's this big election going on. There's bread and circuses and everyone's giving out naked ladies and such. But this is falling apart, and I can tell this is falling apart. And I think that's that for me is just an amazing piece of world building. Mm-hmm. So, Zach, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, Zach, this is Zach, I feel like this is like right up your alley in terms of just these like sweeping world building type of things. So, I'm curious to hear what you had to say too. I feel absolutely the same way. I thought that it was interesting to learn about Volantis again and again and again. And to learn about it in different stages through different characters. Yes. yes. And for Tyrion to to reach this realization of it in such an opportune time after he's left the side of young Griff and uh, is about to head toward his his destiny. And he, the fact that he's with Jorah is just a very like, yeah, ah, of all people. It's, it, it's the meat and potatoes of the aha, like fist raised in the air, triumphant. Ha! Like when something really awesome in the story happens that you love, like the Hound and Arya going off together for way long in the books. Like, oh yeah! Like this is the thing that we get to do. So it's feeling that with Tyrion and Jorah and feeling those just, I, I think my note was just 
ace banter and I felt the okay emoji like mm-hmm in thin air and I maybe heard a little <laughs> chime ding ding along with it because it was just Total. it's just some ace banter like the back and forth of these guys is, is just it's what you're yeah. showing up to Game of Thrones the TV show for and it's what you're picking up these books for not to mention everything else but that it just so happens this chapter had that gold and the other kinds of gold it was just gold I mean this is just I mean, I thought it was an amazing chapter. And there's so much, like the fire knights of the yeah. the red priest and that giant, the Lord of Lights sanctum. And they've got a thousand fire knights. And he's like, how many of those guys does he have? And he's like, a thousand, no more, no no less. A new flame is kindled for everyone that gutters out. And it's like, hmm. Yeah, that's, like, that's so amazing. Because like prior to this point, we just, the only Relorites we've seen have been like rogues or like individual castoffs, you know, Melisandre, Thoros, just kind of randos who are in Westeros. But now like, okay, this is the establishment. This is where they come from. This is the center of, of the Red God's faith. And it's this massive temple, like, you know, huger than the Sept of Baylor and giving this big speech. And like, Tyr- I love that Tyrion keeps looking around and noticing, wow, everyone here is a slave. Like, that's who's interested mm-hmm. in this message. That's who come into play. And you, again, you get the sense of something simmering, something building underneath the surface. Like, there's uh, this chapter, I think, gets across what a revolution coming feels like. Like, you can just sense it in the atmosphere. It's about to break. And I think this gets it across. But, and like you said, Zach, there's the Tyrion Jorah dynamic, which I love because they're, they're so broken in such similar ways that they can't help but hate each other because they recognize each other, you know, in, they see they see themselves in the other person and that makes them hate the other person because they both hate themselves so much. So that's yeah, for me, that's yeah, that's an instantly great dynamic. I mean, you touched on something that I wanted to dive into a little bit more because I think it's super interesting about this temple of the Lord of Light and this high priest and, and kind of how the place is just packed with followers it's really interesting because the last chapter that we, the last Cersei chapter we read is when she ends up arming the faith militant. And I kind of got that oh. same feeling-ish from reading this chapter in the sense of like all of these common people packed in this area because that chapter um, that we read with Cersei, they're all kind of packed there outside the sept and, and just to kind of like see the, as you're saying, like a rise of some sort of something or other and like the power that faith can have over people and all that kind of thing it was really interesting for me to have had just had that conversation about what's happening in Westeros and then to think here super far away we've got this massive following of this place that's three times the size of the great sept of Baelor and three times I'm sure like the amount of people there and and it, it was just a really cool comparison for for me to see. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. That's a great point. I mean, that's, you know, when you read fe- both Feast and Dance, you can, those kind of parallels pop out at you. Uh, but yeah, I'd never thought about that before. And that's definitely true. You get this sense of kind of this, this revolt from below, like, you know, people coming out from underneath mm-hmm. the flagstones to, to get that sense of it. Um, and yeah, different perspective, like in the Cersei chapter, you're seeing it from the point of view of the elite that they're fighting. And in this, you're like you're just seeing it from like a, a random traveler, an outsider who's kind of just like taking it all in. But yeah, exactly. you, you get you get yeah, Benero as as the High Sparrow equivalent, definitely giving his big speech. Um, and uh, and I love the way he, yeah, he brings up Dany uh, as like as you know he's he's anointing her as Zora High and sends Makuro to find her for that reason. Uh, but what I love about it is interesting is like he also like. 
he's trying to he's doing he's doing this great political thing where he's trying to make her religious ascension the same thing as her political maneuvers. Like he's trying to tie the two together. Like she's Azora High and she's destined to free the slaves. But like Azora High, he's got nothing to do with freeing slaves. Like that's not what his legend is about at all. But he's trying to like merge the two. Like she's the Messiah figure who will save the world and also break everyone's chains. Like he's trying to make make those two stories into one, which I think politically is a really interesting thing to do. When I was reading this, I was thinking the High Sparrow needs to take some notes. The level oh, of yeah, pageantry, the smart, smart that Benero, it's staggering when you compare the two. And Tyrion was feeling the same, which I thought was a, a another glorious part of his perspective in this chapter. We could have learned about the rise and fall of the Volantine state just through the descriptions. If you're paying attention while you're reading, you don't have to be taking notes. I feel like it, it's it's staggering, the reflections, both before and after he's allowed to have the majesty wear off a little bit and see the vines that are growing up through the cracks. Absolutely. It's it's for me like, and it's it's a real world thing. Like if you walk, I remember I was in, uh, I was in London for a semester when I was in college in 2011. And there was like, uh, towards the end of that semester, there was huge student riots. There are a lot of unrest in the city about like raising tuition and a lot of stuff like that. And like, you could feel it. Like even when stuff wasn't happening, you could just walk around the city and it was just in the air. It was just electric. And like, for me that this chapter kind of emphasizes that, that it's, this is something you can, even if you don't, even if you're not from the city, you can just, you can, you can sense it. It's, it's just in there. Or maybe especially and, and if you're not from maybe the city. Maybe especially, exactly. If you don't have any biases and he's just coming at it from the outside and you can see like, you know, the old blood is trying to run this place partially through terror because you see like the long bridge, the centerpiece of it is, you know, heads and hands of slaves who have rebelled and they're trying to run it through partially terror and partially through bread and circuses, like with the election, just, you know, bribing the citizenry. To, to take part in the the um the tigers right that's the warlike faction taking over the mm-hmm. city and going to war with Dany so you get kind of this this big surface appeal but yeah you can Tyrion you know can can sniff out how it's fake and he can sniff out how it's fake because like he was there for the Lannister regime when it was kind right. of like papered over all the contradictions and was pretending it was much more powerful than it was so he he knows he knows what that looks like because he was he was part of it he was in that system. And he can kind of sense that, yeah, things are going wrong. And then he goes to the Red Temple. And then after that, he meets the widow and he gets, okay, here's here's how it's all going to come crashing down around. And I think it's important for both Tyrion and maybe even especially us, the reader, to be taught these points through the lens of his mind, but most especially for it to be done in a place like Volantis where it's it is so old and there is so much history it's so intricate and Tyrion is blown away by how complicated this is and the places they visit, how they dwarf the places he's seen in Westeros and how they're much more intricate and how these, there's so many hidden rooms and nooks and crannies. Two wagons can ride abreast here and there's actual traffic where sometimes we might actually have to get out of the wagon. But at the end of the day, it's just, we, we needed to learn and we needed to see where it eventually gets to, where it goes to, and how even when it gets there, it doesn't stop it from falling prey to the same problems. And those problems may even be amplified if the place is so grand. Like we were talking about how our High Sparrow doesn't punch up to the weight class of Venero here. Venero is literally killing it. 
It says, Benero jabbed a finger at the moon, made a fist, spread his hands wide. When his voice rose in a crescendo, this is what he does when he's giving his speech to convince everyone that what they're doing is the right thing. Flames leapt from his fingers with a sudden whoosh and made the crowd gasp. They're going, ah, outside their temple. The priest could trace fiery letters in the air as well. So he's literally, these are just characters. So these are just, these are the, the images uh, just people that maybe can't hear it, they can at least see it. This kind of propaganda flying through the sky right now in fire. Valyrian glyphs, Tyrion recognized, pro- perhaps two and ten. One was doom, the other darkness. Yeah, that's... Not very hopeful. I know, <laughs> right? Know? But no, that's, that's such, yeah, vivid, very metal stuff. And yeah, I totally agree. Like, you see throughout this chapter, Essos is... Essos is just a, a bigger and richer place than Westeros. I mean, West, that's one of the things I find interesting about this story is that Westeros is a backwater. Like, it's the it's the poor, gray, drab, uninteresting part of this world. Like, when Ka- like when Joris says about Cal Drogo, like, Cal Drogo thinks of Westeros as, like, a couple of cities, like, clinging to rocks. And, like, he's not wrong compared to Essos. That's what Westeros is. Uh, you know, Westeros is the colonized continent. Like, you know, people from Essos have swept over the sea to Westeros. To, to And, like, if you look at the economy, like, Westeros sends out raw materials. Essos deals with finished products because they're higher up the economic ladder. And, yeah, you see that in the revolutions, too. I mean, the High Sparrow, you know, he's a dedicated, smart, crafty dude, but he comes to town with a, a wagon full of bones, and Bonero's writing letters and fire. So they, mm-hmm. there's definitely just, there's just more. It's all just, he, it's just big. But like you say, that just means it has farther to fall. There's just mm-hmm. more to collapse, basically. And, and for Tyrion to grow up dreaming of this mm. world beyond the narrow sea and to be so impressed with what the Valyrians did and to all of those free cities that popped up in its wake, the legends and the architecture and the people that must live there. It's so fascinating to him, but he's here on not really a pleasurable experience. No, he's here as a slave. Yeah. He's literally being dragged through the streets like the most of this chapter. But he's still kind of in awe as he sees everything. And I don't know if he would see everything as truly if he wasn't being drugged through the streets. Absolutely. Like he's used to, you know, if he was still traveling with Illyrio, he'd be in a palanquin, like, you know, behind a curtain. He wouldn't see any of this stuff. Uh, but yeah, he's much more on the ground now. And he's, yeah, I, he's being brought here as a slave. That's how Dora is treating him. And like there's that. And that's what this whole city is built on. Again, like we're talking about the Greyjoys with their kind of supremacist mindset. That's Volantis is built on that. Like you have, you go into the merchant's house uh, that Tyrion and Jorah stay at, where we saw Quentin and his companions stay. It's very kind of like a hub for the city. And like there are, there's an iron ring built into the wall of every room. Because that's how, <laughs> that's how much slavery there is in Volantis. That it's, it's yeah. economically worth it for this hotel to have that ring in the rooms. Because that's how likely it is that the travelers will have slaves with them. And it's also just like this message you're sending to the slaves. Like, I mean, you know, for slavery to work, to, to last, it has to convince slaves that they're supposed to be slaves. It has to, like, impress upon people that you are meant to be this way. You, you have to be this way. And that's like having an iron ring in the room is part of that. Like, this entire city is set up for you to be a slave. This is not like a condition that you can escape. This is who you are. We are determining this. This is your place in society. And Volantis only works. If that works, like if it's built on fear, and as we can see throughout this chapter, the slaves are increasingly not afraid anymore. That's partially because of Dany, partially because of Relore, partially just because Galantis is kind of crumbling. But like, they're Come the, and get the it, fears. In, 
Exactly. The fear isn't quite working, and you can see them kind of desperately trying to reestablish it, but it's it's starting to fade. It's starting to go, and I think, yeah, I think you needed... We needed this sense of, like, how the SOC slave societies work, because we didn't really get a sense of much of it in Storm of Swords, because, like, as soon after Dany was introduced to it, she started conquering it and, and burning it down. So this, like, dance really takes its time and shows you, like, okay, this is how this world operates. This is how... The people in power run. This is how what they want to get done. This is what the people who are coming up from below. This is what it all looks like. So that when it all eventually comes down, we get a real a sense of why and how it's happening. Elsewhere, a pair of Sivas players waged war outside a tavern. Mm. Tyrion in that Sivas. Always a good metaphor, yep. George zooming out a little bit. It doesn't matter. Here they're playing their own little world and universe on this table here. Can I ask a question that's a totally change of gears, but I think was like the highlight or one of the biggest questions I had throughout this chapter. Yo. A lot of what Tyrion is kind of thinking and kind of running through his head is he's thinking a lot about Aegon and what he's doing and how he would or wouldn't fit in here and, and kind of that whole crew. And one of my questions I think that I feel confused about a little bit or maybe like trying to wrap my mind around is Tyrion's entire motives with them and that crew, mm. Tyrion's motive now and here and whether he was actually trying to help Aegon or whether kind of basically what you guys see especially in context of this chapter what is Tyrion trying to accomplish and does he have some sort of set plan or is he really just kind of going as things come I think that's kind of one of my my biggest questions coming out of this chapter is like what what is he trying to do yeah that's a thorny one what do you think, Zach? I felt like Tyrion was turning into the role of the Joker or of mm. the Jester, sort of metaphysically, for much of this past book, or at least much of his time after murdering his father, and consistently going back to it and descending frequency. And when we get we get a little bit of it in this chapter when he's talking to Jorah about, well, he's you know, give me a crossbow and I'll show you how it feels. Something like that. Joking yeah, about yeah, right. murdering his dad in a wretched manner. Which it was interesting. Did you like how did you like how Jorah thought of anyone murdering their own father? He's just like his dad was such he was such old bear that Jorah was like, That's a crazy idea to me. I don't even know how you could do that. Yeah, that's that's true. Totally lost my train of thought, but <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was very cute. But when Jorah said Marine, that yes. one word I love that everything scene. changed everything changed and it's palpable as you're reading it's just toward the end of the chapter george writes it in that way it says one word period in that one word everything changed for him and he doesn't believe it and i think that he was maybe playing with it before his ideas hannah but i think now that he sees this he's like mm. and i think he's giving up a little bit of that chaos he he referenced it some in this chapter when he said I think life is a jape. Yours, mine, everyone's. Exactly, yeah. It's it's such a colossal joke. Like, he thought originally the plan was for, like, you know, young Griff and Griff to go off to Marine, and now they're going to Westeros, and I'm going to Marine without them. Like, what a ridiculous chain of events this is. Um, but yeah, the fact that he's so shocked by the concept of going to Marine, yeah, I think he was trying to manipulate Egan into going home to Westeros so that Tyrion could take revenge on his family. Like, that's that's what I think he was trying to do. He was trying to get Egan 
He was trying to like basically stick the Golden Company on Cersei and Jaime, I think is what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And okay. try to tear tear down that regime using Egan as a as an instrument. On the other hand, like he does when like you point out, Hannah, when he hears about like that young Griff is going off to Westeros, he's like, What? They're actually doing that? Yeah. Why would they do that? Are they idiots? Which what is which is what made me believe that it was more of just for chaos's sake and that he wasn't that invested sure, right. in whether chaos or not is they the actually latter. <laughs> went, went back to Westeros or not. But now that he hears that it is happening and that Jorah Mormont is taking him back to Marine. He's just like, this is all to because he knows how close Jorah is to Daenerys. And I feel like maybe at this point he's he's maybe stepping out a little bit and we're not getting it in his chapter because it would be even too meta. But I think maybe he's even zooming out a little bit and going, am I in some kind of book? right now totally. he's... or something because this is all just what exactly he's when he yeah he he laughs when he hears that jor is taking three he like laughs, he's laughs out loud he la- he's like he's laughing at george saying really really this is what you're doing to me this is hysterical right like yeah he's what is it um the line is something like paths within paths or roads within roads but they all lead down the dragon's gullet yes mm-hmm. uh yeah it's it's all just yeah like you say, it's it's just a a giant joke for him at this point. Um, and yeah, I think you're you're probably right. But he it might also not, isn't. But it also, but deep down, he wants. He still does want to believe in something. You can still tell. Yeah, you know. He I think that to. that's what makes it so interesting. Is that like he really is playing it off as a joke and like making all these as we we're talking about at the beginning. So much of this like banter and this great like dark Tyrion sense of humor that's twisted and so much about his father, but. At the same time, he's having these internal dialogues about how people are, you know, as we're saying, the different things that are happening and the way people are moving and the fact that he's going to Marie. And it's like he says that it's all a joke and that he kind of plays it off as one way. But I think that really deep down, it's like he he's in it and and he wants to be part of it. And um, it's just it's very this very interesting thing to me that I haven't quite figured out what I think. but just this question that just stayed with me through this whole chapter is like, well, what is he trying to accomplish and what his motives are aside from those outwardly ones against his family? And what has he been doing this whole time? Basically, I think it's just, I think it's super interesting. Yeah. I don't know if there's a real answer. No, very well said. I think he's, you know, he just, he doesn't want to get hurt again. And, you know, if he believes in something, if he invests himself in Egan, if he invests himself in Dany, if he invests himself in Jorah or like the slaves in Volantis, like, I think he feels like, well, I did that in King's Landing. Like, I went out and saved King's Landing, the people of King's Landing, you know, during the Battle of Blackwater. And then they spat on me. So why why would I do that to myself again? Why would I put myself out there again? I'm, I'm just going to get hurt. And that that works so beautifully in terms of him meeting Penny, which he does at the end of this chapter. Because, like, she kind of forces him to get outside his own head a little bit and get re-engaged with the world in a way he wasn't really doing before. Um, and, yeah, I agree. He, I think he's flip-flopping. I think he's not quite sure what he thinks or what he wants at this point. And, and I think Martin's definitely kind of leaving that ambiguous. Because not in this chapter, but in his previous chapter, when he was, you know, doing the the Cyboss game with Egan, like, we didn't get access to any of his thoughts during that scene. Like there were mm-hmm. no italicized moments of like Tyrion thinking, ah, yes, that'll that'll get the boy to do what I want. Like he's not, we we're not given access to what he's right. thinking, just what he's saying and doing. So I think that yeah, I think that ambiguity, Hannah, you're definitely right, is definitely in there, and I think deliberate for sure. <laughs> 
I'm just like going deep in my head right now. I'm like, oh God. Yeah, I feel like this chapter, it's so easy to get down this like rabbit hole of these very exactly. overarching it's questions. So dense. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even touched on the widow and she's my favorite. She's amazing. I feel like he sees all of this for what it is. Even this opportunity popping up with him being, of course, right even further toward the dragon's gullet. After mm-hmm. I've learned all of these lessons, he's like, I've learned all this stuff. I figured it out. I'm in Volantis. It's not as awesome as I thought it would be. You know, <laughs> he's like, it's it's not that great. And things need to change here like they do everywhere else and probably will always need to. So what's the point? What's the point? And then you're right. He sees Penny and he's shaking out of his mind a little bit. And we had those excellent asides in this chapter where he was thinking back. And really, I thought the the most important lessons that he's pulled away from the things he's gone through has been his appreciation of the pain he's been able to feel. Mm-hmm. The pain that's been caused by him or the pain that's been caused in the name of him, the pain of the people that he loves. And he just wants it, like you said, he wants it to end. But I think he also realizes it's that pain that gives so much of what he's doing actual meaning. And so he could quit and they could sell off and trade and sell spices or silks or whatever. But he's like, this is, I'll go talk to her and give her advice if she wants, or if she wants me to sleep with her, that's fine too. He's just like, I'm just going to go on with this and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. That's his attitude. And, you know, he meets, he meets the widow and the widow is, has interesting things in common with Dany. You know, like she's, She's the widow of a powerful slaveholder, just like Dany is. She's kind of coming up from below and leading her own people in the same way Dany is. Um, and, you know, like I feel like Tyrion's, like, conversation with her and, like, his respect for her and admiration for her is kind of like a, a rough draft or, like, a dry run for him and Dany. You know, like, that's how he's going to look at her and, and talk to her and think about her. And uh, And she's just, like, this... I don't know, she's just, like, this great mix of, like, cynical in a way he can appreciate, but, like, she's she's not detached. She's invested in this revolution. She's got her people and got her ideas and got her power. So she's, you know, she's gone through horrible stuff as much as or even more than he has, but she's still invested and she still has something she cares about deeply. And he's kind of he's kind of confronted with that. Let me crook a finger and you may find yourself traveling to Marine chained to an oar in the belly of a galley. Indeed. She's got some real power. Like she she mentions her sons, like the way that the same way the harpy has sons in Marine. She has sons in Volantis. But, you know, we'll, we'll do her bidding. Uh, and yeah, she's I love it. It's, it's it's very like it turns into almost like a noir thing. Like she's sitting on the back table and like watching. Oh, the yeah. Door, <laughs> and you got to like get permission to talk to her. It's like it's it's. It's it's very like you can imagine it like a forties black and white kind of thing all of a sudden. Seek the widow of the waterfront, someone told you, but they should have also warned you, beware the widow's sons. Yeah, every line she says is just is so perfect that way. Perfect. I, I, I love I hope I can't wait to see more of her because she does have that amazing closing chapter line. Tell her we are waiting, tell her to come soon. Like that just gets sent shivers down my spine. That's such a oh, great line. Oh my gosh, yeah. I have so many questions. I like how she kind of her view on Tyrion kind of turned, not necessarily on Jorah, but on Tyrion seems to kind of turn in this chapter. And as we are kind of discussing, eventually helping grant them passage. And I want to read exactly what she says, because I think it's so great. She says, should you reach your queen give her a message from the slaves of old Volantis? She touched the faded scar upon her wrinkled cheek where her tears had been cut away. Tell her we're waiting. Tell her to come soon. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. What do you guys think about, can you imagine Melisandre seeing all of these people in Volantis of Roller 
pledge for Danny. Yeah. And and kind of how how she may react to that. I mean, that's I, I feel I like would, she'd I, go for it. I, I I hope we get more like in Melisandre's POV, like her relationship to this temple and how exactly she broke away from it. Because yeah, that's yeah. a really interesting thing to consider. Like, how did how did she reach this conclusion that it was Stannis instead of Danny and like broke away and. Well, I'd like to know what they think of her, if they even care. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that dynamic. Is she as simple as a big fish in a little pond? We're leaving her order and, and gaining the ear of someone like Stannis and Westeros because it's less crowded? Or did she was she really stand out? And was she sent? Or is there, you know, a faded reason other than her just leaving? I mean, we see that she has real power. Right. So I oh, mean, yeah. do they much all more have so that? Than, you know, I don't know. Much more that, more so than someone like Thoros, who like didn't yeah. just like almost a non-believer until he brought back Beric. But how much compared to someone like Benero? Right, that's an interesting question. Like, part of me wonders, is like, is, was Melisandre like the star pupil who went rogue or was she like the bottom of the class? And like, that's why she left because like, she actually, I mean, Melisandre has a lot of real power, but she also has a lot of fakery going on and a lot of cover-ups. Yeah. <laughs> so like, maybe Very she's... True. Exactly. So maybe she's, you know, maybe she's not, maybe she's nowhere near as good as Benero. We, you know, we really don't, I mean... We see Makuro, and he's got some real stuff going. So yeah, I would love, I would love to to know more about her relationship to the kind of the establishment, so to speak, of of Relorism, and how she how she kind of how she feels about that. And yeah, how 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 she would feel if she knew. I don't think she even knows about Danny's dragons at this point. But how she would feel if she knew that all the other Relorites were kind of gathering behind Danny. Talk about. I mean, she already has a crisis of faith. Talk about. This being another piece added on to that. She backed the wrong horse in the Messiah race. And yeah, that's that would be a, a very difficult thing for her to accept, I think. Earlier in the chapter, Tyrion questions himself, questions the world. He says, you know, what at what cost do you become an ally with people like this when he mm. sees how the Red Faith has enveloped and how it's enamoring the masses? But we know the widow with the waterfront is allied with those people. We trust her opinions, right? Like we maybe we don't trust her enough to make these kinds of deals ourselves. But as we're reading the book, she seems like she's she's fairly honest. She kind of reminds me of someone like Olena Tyrell. Oh, totally. I think probably probably deliberately. Yeah, we've got a lot of respect for her. And so it's like, hmm, what does Tyrion think about her then? Like, what is he not saying to us that he informed earlier in the chapter? Because he sees it. And I wonder what he's thinking about this whole thing. And on the other side of that, what does she really think about Jorah when he says he's he wants to only serve, defend, and die for Danny if need be. And she's just like, all right. Well, I've heard <laughs> uh, so many people say that. He's like, it's, I don't think that you're as true and as chivalrous as you're a Westerosi knight crossing half the world. I don't know about that. Yeah, she's just basically like, oh, you sweet, sweet boy. Uh-huh. Tell me more about your your ridiculous feelings. Again, it's like with Triss. It's like, it's just, come on, dude. Mm-hmm. There's just so much mistrust here between everyone. And Danny still has that same, Hannah, that same damn rumors come up again. Do you think her dwarf, yeah. dwarf is there? Will she bathe in his blood? Do you think, or content herself with striking off? His, no, that's not the part. But anyway, she definitely was, was hearing from that same gossip mill about, about yeah, who Daenerys bathing actually in is. virginal blood. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. It, it can't yeah, be totally. non, non-virgin blood. It has to be the blood of virgins. Otherwise, Danny will <laughs> Otherwise not bathe in it. Work. Yeah, she it can tell. Count, right. So much of dances, people talking about Dany and spreading rumors about Dany and thinking about her and what she like, you know, Quentin's thinking about what her. What does she feed her dragons and what does she take a bath in? I feel like exactly. that's the what topic we, of the, the day. Answer to these questions. 
But yeah, I love like the widow, like when the slavers talk about dating that way, it's with fear and hatred. Like, you know, oh, she's going to take everything from us and kill our children. And the widow, and she says like, you know, it's that stuff about Danny. It's almost admiring. Like she thinks of Danny as this conquering badass who's going to just destroy the, uh, the entire slaver class. So like everyone, everyone is like trying to make Danny work for their little narrative. Like whatever their little story is, whatever they want the world to be, they're trying to make Danny fit. And sometimes that's for good, sometimes that's for bad, but everyone kind of wants her to, to play along with their story. Even Jorah. Even even sad, ridiculous Jorah thinks that's going to work. I wonder what he thinks about all this when he sees them drawing characters in the air, telling a, a story about how the darkness has turned its eye upon Daenerys, but she will prevail. He's like, damn right. <laughs> yeah, you just sing Khaleesi over and over again. <laughs> Khaleesi. <laughs> But if, it, if it doesn't work out, he'll go back to finding hookers that look like her. That'll just be his. That'll be his way so, for the rest of his life. Oh, uh, Tyrion's like, uh, "You found me in a brothel, so stop making fun of me." Yeah, <laughs> I exactly. saw you there too. Yeah, like, there's that that commonality. Like Tyrion is is like looking for Tysha wherever he goes now, and Jorah's looking for Dany wherever he goes. They're just like projecting their lost loved one onto everyone they meet in this really dysfunctional way. Pretty sure I copied it in my notes to read off of one of my as one of my seventeen owns, but <laughs> I can't find it. So you'll find it. <laughs> Which, as I say that, I feel like I've already talked about all the owns that I wanted to give. All of them. Well, you know, like there's. I feel like whenever I try to give an own, I try not to give it to something that we've already talked a lot about, like Hagen's daughter, or that line with Christopher when, uh. Asha says, I do not love you, and I do not run. Because <laughs> I thought that was so great. Emmett, do you know what yours is? I would probably say my own goes to Hagen's red-haired daughter, yeah. for It's like, for how not, can you not? How can you not? For for not choosing between sex and battle. For, for doing both at the same time. It's so good. My own for the chapter is, in a conversation with Christopher, he says that Euron was hiding the fact that he killed... Damp air because he didn't want to be labeled as a kinslayer because he did he just he didn't want to be labeled that badly and uh, she goes never let my uncle hear you say that tell the crows out he's afraid of kinslaying and he'll murder one of his own sons just to prove you wrong it says <laughs> yep. well, which is crazy right it says Asha was feeling almost sober by then Christopher Botley had that effect on her <laughs> that's a Two great A's. line he's like sub- <laughs> he's sobriety in the form of a person that's so amazing poor Christopher um, I decided what my own is going to be, if I'm allowed to give Sweet. one now. Hannah the Latecomer. Hannah the Latecomer is giving... <laughs> Honestly, okay, I want to give my own to what Emmett said about peaches. Yeah. Because I just thought that was such a cool connection that I hadn't thought about. So I'm giving my own to Emmett. <laughs> also chapter. for like, everything else he said in this episode so far. Yeah, also for everything else so far. <laughs> yeah. Most Two of kinds. it, you know, most of it was really eye-opening. Most of it. Especially the parts when he agreed with me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> exactly. that tonight. I was like, man, Hannah's on fire. Damn <laughs> straight. So, so. Damn straight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tyrion 7. Oh, gosh. I'm so glad that we did Tyrion 7 and The Way We Bride tonight. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. Okay. I'm going to go ahead because I just already have it before I lose it. My own for Tyrion chapter is when he and Jorah are strolling along and they see the heads that are rotting and mm-hmm. he asks, you know, about the young one and said, killed his father. And it says Tyrion gave the rotting head a second look, a second look. Why it almost looks as if those lips were smiling. 
because he's like, Ooh. he killed his dad. <laughs> so it's like we share the same little secret. Mm-hmm. Man, that's dark. Every moment in this chapter is dark. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is true. This is true. Own to that. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I already talked about Penny, but like, yeah, my overall own for Tyrion 7 goes to the widow of the waterfront for her amazing, badass closing line. Tell her we are waiting. Tell her to come soon. It's just, it's just that's just a perfect way to end a chapter and a perfect setup for her later later doings. So good. Unofficial own goes to Jorah for handing Tyrion a tankard when he asks for it. He's like, "Some ale to wash it down," and he he thinks about it and he's like, he handed it to him. He goes, "Most of Alanis is getting drunk. Why not you?" <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. I thought it really just said a lot about the city. Most of stuff we've already been saying in the episode, but it just. You know, just in case you were wondering if the place has gone to hell, Dora's like, you're my prisoner, but fuck it, just drink. But my own goes to to Tyrion for when he was looking outside of the window. It says, for half a heartbeat, he thought he glimpsed Illyrio Mopatis, but it was only one of those white dwarf elephants passing the front door. (laughs) (laughs) So, Pretty much, yeah. Oh, what a sick burn. And he didn't say it out loud to anyone, you know? He just just (laughs) made himself laugh. So thanks for that, Tyrion. A quiet inner burn. Yep. And even though you're listening to the episode, we still want you to send in your owns for Tyrion and the Wayward Bride because in order to get Emmett to be able to record with us and just with scheduling this week, we had to send out the call fairly quickly and then that didn't give people a lot of time to respond. So even if we don't get to read your own this week, please, please send them in because there are so many moments that we've barely had the chance to cover. So we'll talk about at the end of the show how you can do that. But for now, we've got one own from the one and only. Brienne of Tarth. Of course, we could depend on her sword to be true. Always. Mm-hmm. At Beauty Brienne on Twitter, who says, giving one to the idea of Torgon Latecomer. The thought of a prodigal heir coming to overthrow a reigning despot is nice, even if it isn't going to go how asha hopes brian also writes also noteworthy jorah acting like selling people into slavery and causing his father to join the night's watch isn't as bad as Tyrion killing tywin excellent i love that one lol nicely jorah. Done, that's good good owns and as he said if you want to send in your owns which we still absolutely encourage this week and always you can do that in a couple different ways you can find us on twitter at game of owns or on facebook uh, by searching for Game of Owns, or you can send us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. Emmett, we should talk about your links. Sure. You can find my main blog is uh, poorquentin.tumblr.com. Quentin's spelled with a Y, like the character in Song of Ice and Fire, obviously. I also go by Poor Quentin on Twitter. Uh, my stuff pops up in uh, Vulture and Deadspin and Vice and a couple other places. So you can search my uh, real name, Emmett Booth, E-M-M-E-T-T Booth, uh, to find that stuff. And yeah, and I pop up on lovely podcasts like this from time to time as well. Oh, I also um, write some for the History of Westeros podcast, so my stuff pops up on there as well. Anything else? (laughs) I think that just about covers it for the moment. If I uh, run away to join the circus or something, I'll let you know. (laughs) I love it. No, it's been, it's honestly, every time we have you on, I feel like we can talk for hours and hours and hours and it's never enough. So Absolutely. thank you so much for, for jumping on with us. We didn't get to talk about Quentin Greyjoy enough. We didn't get to you talk know? about half of this stuff enough, to be honest with you. I know. And we were just talking These about Penny. chapters, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. I know no, that. I agree. It's a, a real delight. It always makes me feel good to come on. So my pleasure, believe me. I think that's it, folks. I think that just about covers it. Next up, we have Daenerys 5 and... John 6 from A Dance with Dragons. Daenerys and John 
Just saying. That's a solid a solid twofer. They're definitely good to link them. And that episode will be in your ears after Thanksgiving. So we wish you a fun holiday and please eat a lot of food. <laughs> and everyone should also send in all of the hilarious dinner conversations that come up when your family asks about Game of Thrones slash A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> yes, indeed. Enjoy. Enjoy.